Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey there, Food Junkies listeners, Molly here. I have a few announcements before we get to the interview that we did with Dr. Ben Bickman. So Dr. Vera Tarman's sugar and food addiction course with Dr. Eric Westman's Adapt Your Life Academy will have its open enrollment start September 26th and go through October 3rd. The course is $167 US and the program is made up of two essential components, modules and lessons partnered with an ongoing support group. Clarissa and I will be there too. So in this course, you will learn why your self-destructive behaviors around food are not your fault, how specific foods are engineered to hijack your brain, the role of hormones and neurotransmitters, how wanting, knowing, and doing are controlled in the brain, the differences between food addiction and various eating disorders, the different stages of food addiction and which treatment approaches are best for each, the critical importance of social support and recovery from food addiction, how to create a recovery plan that's realistic, enjoyable, and sustainable, and that there's hope. Did you know Clarissa and I are clinicians working with clients daily? We've teamed up to bring you three weekly affordable professional support options, and we wanted to be sure you knew about them. Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern or 7 p.m. UK, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, and Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern or 7 p.m. UK, you can join in group coaching. It's 60 minutes and it's $10 US. You'll have one-to-one interaction as well as group feedback. And many group members even connect with one another outside of group as well. Finally, I'm looking for volunteers willing to share their stories on the Sweet Sobriety YouTube channel to decrease stigma and increase awareness around food addiction. Day one or day 1001, we want to hear your story. If you're interested, please consider scheduling an interview. You can go to our website, foodjunkiespodcast.com and follow the links to learn more about any of the announcements. Okay, you heard me right. We interviewed Dr. Ben Bickman. In this episode, Vera and Dr. Bickman talk about the personal and professional journey, the fat cell and the role of insulin, free fatty acids and fatty liver disease, weight gain, the China study, insulin resistance, cutting carbs, prioritizing protein and not fearing fat, fasting, ketones versus glucose, food addiction. What's next? And our signature question. Welcome, Dr. Bickman. Okay. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman and I am your co-host today along with Molly Painshaw. Today we are speaking with Dr. Ben Bickman. Dr. Bickman is an associate professor of pathophysiology and biomedical science in Brigham Young University. Dr. Bickman earned his PhD in bioenergetics and was a postdoctoral fellow at the Duke National University of Singapore in the study of metabolic disorders. He is especially interested in the molecular implicators of obesity especially the role of insulin. He is the author of Why We Get Sick and a widely watched YouTube video called The Plagues of Prosperity. What a great title. Both of which show that insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction are the underlying causes of many of our modern health problems, such as diabetes, hypertension, polycystic ovary, erectile dysfunction, gout, GERD, cancer, and Alzheimer's, basically all the bread and butter of clinical medicine. We at Food Junkies are especially interested in what Dr. Bickman has to say about these dangers of a highly refined processed food diet, much of which we obviously can avoid if we can stop our sugar-free or, or maintain our sugar-free, trigger-free meal plan. That's why we're interested. So welcome, Dr. Bickman. My pleasure. I uh, thank you so much for the invitation. I am particularly struck by how clever that phrase was that you just said. Was it sugar-free, trigger-free? Yeah. That is, I love that. Those oh. two really ought to go together because the moment you sort of light up those sweet receptors, boy, it's you're going to have a hard time turning them off. Okay, good. Thank you. Molly, let's write that down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> lean into that. I love yeah. it. So we always start with the personal, and uh, we'd like to know how you got involved sort of your personal story into nutritional biochemistry, and then how you discovered the importance of insulin in the whole obesity uh, story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I've always been interested in the body and in being healthy. I was raised in a home where my, my dad in particular was very interested in us eating real food mm-hmm. and making sure we always took our vitamins. And so I, we had certainly a culture of health in the home and an appreciation for junk food and, and where it belonged, which was, this was not something that our pantry was, was stocked with. If there was junk food, it was because the little bit of allowance we got every week, we went and bought some treats and that was just the end of it. Well, I was not raised in a, in a junk food filled home and I'm very grateful for that. So I was very interested in the body and in health. And uh, that was directing my undergraduate studies somewhat, including to the point of me starting a master's degree. And during that master's degree in exercise physiology, I stumbled across a manuscript that had been published that detailed how fat cells, when they got big, became pro-inflammatory, actively secreting immune proteins called cytokines throughout the body. And by activating other immune processes around the body, that created a situation where insulin wasn't working as well, and thus blood sugar levels would start to rise. So that, in my mind, acted as a bit of a bridge that connected these twin epidemics. Everyone's talking about epidemics these days. Well, Mm -hmm. ones that have been around for much longer than the current ones we're all afraid of were obesity and diabetes. And so in my mind, it was this kind of firmly planted idea that on one hand, we have obesity, the other diabetes, and insulin resistance was what uh, connected the two. That uh, bridge. Yeah, that's right. It was the bridge, the mediator between these two things. And that was the focus of my dissertation work. Uh, I wanted to better understand insulin resistance. And thinking of it at the time, I was getting more and more interested in obesity. And why was obesity a problem? Well, at the time, I was thinking, well, it's because obesity increases type 2 diabetes. We knew these two things always went together. And insulin resistance is what connected them. So I was interested in that. So more and more, while my initial interest in the body was born from a place of muscle and exercise, during the course of my graduate degree in exercise physiology, it very much shifted away from the muscle and more to the fat cell. The fat cell became the cell that I was more interested in. And that was appropriate because it's very relevant to insulin resistance and connecting weight gain to type 2 diabetes. And then this only grew during the course of my postdoctoral fellowship. I attended a meeting here in the U.S. because, as you noted, my, my postdoc was overseas. I t- attended a meeting here in the U.S., and one of my old Ph.D. buddies was also at this meeting. And we went out for a run. We, went up, we met up to go out for a, a run that morning. And he had asked me about whether I would be attending a session later that day about Alzheimer's disease. And I had mm-hmm. said, well, no, I don't do anything with Alzheimer's disease. Why would I go to that? And he said, well, I just thought you'd like the title. I hadn't even seen it yet. And he said it was something like the name of that session at this meeting was is Alzheimer's disease type 3 diabetes. And that's a sentiment that has grown a lot in these, what was it, probably 13, 14 years ago. But essentially, that was the beginning of me realizing that insulin resistance was more relevant than just connecting fat cells to type 2 diabetes, that now it was foundational to another disorder that I never imagined was related to a a metabolic problem, namely Alzheimer's disease. And that was the beginning of me starting to wonder where else it fit. And I could go on about when I got hired here as a professor and started teaching and finding more into this. But nevertheless, suffice it to say, what I once thought was relevant only to type 2 diabetes, very quickly I found was relevant to almost every chronic disease, what I like to call the plagues of prosperity. Yeah, right, exactly. You know, Kate, if you can just backtrack, because you, you've spent a couple of minutes talking about the fat cell in a way that nobody has yet. So I want yeah. to just backtrack and talk a little bit about that. One of the things that's always struck me that we don't acknowledge about uh, any kind is that, you know, it's usually seen as the enemy and all that sort of thing. Not fat food, but our mm-hmm. fat cells. And uh, my understanding is that it's actually an endocrine gland and it actually has positive features that can then become derailed, uh, basically, yeah. through insulin. So could you just for our listeners, because we haven't had the chance of anybody to talk about that, just give a 
a, a thumbnail, what is the value of fat cells? And then obviously how they can be um, mismanaged in the way that they are now. Right, right. In fact, that was another part of your... We our fat cells. Yeah, that's right. Well, and I'm, I'm just remembering now that was another part of your question from earlier about the role of insulin and, and obesity and fat cell growth. So fat is an essential tissue. We have to have it to survive well and thrive and reproduce Literally, the beginning of puberty in boys and girls is because fat cells start making more leptin. And literally, if you have no leptin coming from your fat cells going to your brain to kick off the whole process, it will not happen. And that person will never be fertile. And this is so leptin, we always think of it as, as think of it as a satiety hormone. It will sure that's one of many, many aspects. And indeed, I would say it's one of its more modest aspects. The idea that it literally initiates puberty, I think, is far more important than just telling us we're full. There are people who have disorders of fat cells called lipodystrophy, just to really hit this nail on the head. These are people who have a genetic inability to make fat cells. Now, to the naive, they would look at that and say, oh my gosh, how wonderful would it be to not have literally no subcutaneous or even Uh visceral fat? These are people who are exceptionally lean. You see every vein you want to see, every striation of every muscle. They are ripped, as the kids would say these days. And yet, they're type 2 diabetic. They have they're often have fertility problems. It's a terrible disease because they're starting to store fat where fat shouldn't be stored. And that starts to make the other cells insulin resistant. This is something that some people refer to as ectopic fat deposition. The body is so determined to store fat that it starts storing it elsewhere in a very unhealthy way, of course. So back to the non-lipodystrophic body, Fat cells are a absolute necessity to normal human survival. We have to have a place to store energy. Now, that, however, just looks at the fat cell as nothing more than an energy depot. But Vera, as you noted, fat cells are very active endocrine organs producing a myriad of hormones that we would call good or bad. Um, Of course, they're all necessary. They're all part of the orchestra, the ebb and the flow. So none are inherently bad. They're there for a reason. But unfortunately, we tip it more to the bad side because of our modern environment where they start secreting more and more of these problematic hormones or proteins and fewer and fewer of what we would call the beneficial ones. For example, adiponectin starts to come down and adiponectin is a hormone that fat cells make when they're small and they're, they promote insulin sensitivity throughout the body. Well, the bigger the fat cell gets, the less adiponectin the fat cell starts to make and the more pro-inflammatory proteins it starts to make. But these are all, these are just proteins. We could call them hormones, although though because they're involved in immune pathways, we don't. We call them cytokines, but there's literally no difference between them and anything else that we call a hormone. Now, so this is sort of touching on the nature of the fat cell and when it kind of turns bad or good. Fat mass is neither good nor bad. How much fat mass a person has on their body. You know, as, as, as obsessed as we are with fat mass, we're missing the mark. It's not yeah. how much fat we store, but how, I'm not even saying where, but how we store fat. Because there's kind of a where built into that because certain fat depots will naturally store fat in a different, in a healthier way. But by, by how, I mean, are we storing fat more through growing new fat? cells, a process called hyperplasia, wherein fat cells all stay a very modest size. Each individual fat cell is very small. We're just making more and more fat cells. Mm-hmm. Or alternatively, are we storing fat? Is our fat mass going up because of a process called hypertrophy? And this is where the fat cell number isn't changing. We aren't making new fat cells, but each individual fat cell is growing and growing and growing. It's storing much more fat than it did before. So what's happening with us now? Yeah, yeah. So this is, on this side, the hypertrophic side, or the fat cells growing in size but not number. This is where the vast majority of people fall. In general, it's because of a, a genetic predisposition. Some people genetically will go the other way, this process of hyper plasia, um, but it's less common. The majority of people on the planet will get fatter through hypertrophy. So that's a bad way to get fat or a way, a metabolically harmful way, because the bigger the fat cell gets, 
the more pro-inflammatory it becomes, secreting more and more of these pro-inflammatory or pro-immune proteins, and the more it becomes insulin resistant. resistant right there are interesting reasons yeah. for both of these that we can get into. So we can't even blame the hypertrophic fat cell for saying, well, darn you, you're making the rest of the body insulin resistant. Well, it's doing what it needs to to survive. You know, these processes are not inherently bad. It's the never-ending pursuit of homeostasis. We're trying to get the body at a nice kind of operating level. But when we have sufficient energy, now I'm getting to the kind of growth of the fat tissue at all, there must be sufficient energy. And this is where the calories become relevant. Calories do matter, but I don't put them in the primary position because you can't, a fat cell and indeed no cell, knows what to do with energy or any number of calories that you're putting in into the body unless there is a hormone signal to tell it what to do. And this is where insulin, insulin primarily becomes relevant, where if insulin is elevated, now fat cells have no choice but to grow. And the evidence of this is fascinating in humans. There are studies that have looked at people with insulin-dependent diabetes, so people who are giving themselves insulin injections, and they can take a biopsy. So if I had one part of my belly where I was putting in my insulin, and just a few inches away or centimeters, I think we're all Canadians here, a few, I'm from Alberta, so just a few centimeters away, we can take another fat biopsy. So we have a fat biopsy from the site where insulin is getting injected, and a fat biopsy from just a few centimeters away where the insulin isn't getting injected. And we can measure the size of those fat cells. And at the site of the insulin injection, where all that insulin is going, the fat cells are about three to five times bigger. Wow. Yeah. So you can actually look at the size, the diameter of all these individual fat cells. And this is remarkably strong evidence that insulin is inducing this hypertrophic. Let me just just stop. You said so much stuff. I just want to back up a little bit that this is amazing stuff. So, so basically it's the insulin hypertrophy or pardon me, the the fat cell hypertrophy. That's the big problem. And that's fed by insulin. insulin And then it exacerbates the problem even even more. Yeah. Yeah, Because as as the fat cell, that's right. As the fat cell is getting bigger and bigger because insulin's force feeding it, then the fat cell starts to reach a point of maximum dimension because cells have a natural physical limit to how big they can get and how big they should get. And so as the fat cell is reaching multiples, its normal size, it starts to basically tell insulin, insulin, you are continuing to force me to grow. I can grow no more. And thus I have to stop listening to you. Right. Which is we're trying. And so then it becomes insulin resistant. And so it starts leaking out fats even though insulin's trying to inhibit that process, uh-huh. insulin's trying to tell the fat cell, don't shrink, just keep growing, growing, growing. Yeah. The fat cell says, I can't stop you from putting fat in, but you can't stop me now from leaking fat out. And that's the process. That's the evidence of the insulin resistant, the insulin resistance. So if people ever go get a blood test and they're able to convince their physician, their clinic to measure their free fatty acids, Uh, it's not a common one. And that's not, that's not triglycerides. That is not triglycerides. Yes. That's a very good point of distinction. Free fatty acids only come from fat that is being broken down. There's no exception. No, it's very uncommon, but it is, but it's, it's unfortunate because if you look at your free fatty acids, in fact, it's one of my favorite lab tests Uh where you look at insulin and this is a little lesson on fat cell physiology here, but I'll be brief with it. But insulin inhibits the breakdown of fats. That Uh process is called lipolysis. Insulin inhibits lipolysis, the breakdown of fats from fat cells. And so anytime insulin is high, free fatty acids should be very low. In contrast, if someone is fasting or they're eating a low-carbohydrate diet and insulin is low, well, then lipolysis is uninhibited and thus free fatty acids will be higher. The fat cells are just moving the fat around to be burned for energy. These should never be in the same direction. So if someone comes in and they have a blood test and insulin is high and free fatty acids are high, Uh you are detecting the insulin resistance at its very origin, which is the fat cell, because these two should not be high together. And and those fatty 
acids then uh, contribute to fatty liver disease. They absolutely can. In fact, that is the primary source of fat that accumulates in the liver with fatty liver disease. A lot of people talk about the liver is making a lot of its own fat from alcohol or from fructose. And those matter, but most of it is dripping in from fat cells that they they can't grow. They they can't keep that same size. They can't help but leak out the fat. So one of the things that you implied there is if you take insulin or if you become insulin resistant through food, like through through the process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to also ask, because I, again, I haven't heard anybody address this and I think you can, is there a genetic predisposition to, for some people to have more of this hypertrophy? In other words, this development of fat that or insulin resistance. Than yeah, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, like abso- people, absolutely. For example, uh, some people just literally look at sugar, processed food, and they gain weight, and other people don't. Yes. Oh, okay, so there's a couple different things you're bringing up here. So yeah. one is the tendency to gain weight, yes. which is not going to be the same as people having more of a tendency towards hypertrophy versus hyperplasia. But I can kind of touch on both of those. I'll start with the easier one. So we know that across certain ethnicities and even within ethnicity, there are various polymorphisms of the gene called PPAR gamma. P-P-A-R than the Greek letter gamma. PPAR gamma is a primary kind of master regulator within a, a fat cell that dictates the growth of new fat cells or not. And so, for example, in people of Asian ethnicity or descendancy or Hispanic, they are more likely to have polymorphisms in PPAR gamma than, say, someone who's of Northern European, kind of Caucasian, like like the three of us here. There's generally a greater tendency for, for hyperplasia. But if that PPAR gamma has a polymorphism that isn't working as well, then you're stuck more with hypertrophy. And this is very likely why certain ethnicities experience metabolic problems at lower body fat levels, particularly people of Chinese Asian ethnicity, where you can, like in Singapore, where I was doing my postdoctoral studies, this was a point of great interest because there are the primary ethnicity in Singapore is Chinese ethnicity. And they noticed, and others have, of course, as well, that you can take a Chinese ethnicity guy and a Caucasian Northern European guy and both have them start gaining fat at the same rate. Yeah. And the Caucasian guy is doing just fine. And the Chinese guy is now getting high blood pressure. His blood sugar levels are starting to climb. Hypertension starting to settle in. So he starts to suffer the consequences of this fat gain much earlier. And a part of this appears to be this greater tendency towards hypertrophy. Now, that's one part of the question. The second part of the issue that you brought up is how do people, why is it that some people gain weight so much more easily? Well, that is difficult to answer, but we know it's true. What we know it is not is an inherent difference in metabolic rate. That is not the difference between someone gaining weight easily and not versus being a little more resistant to it. What we do know is that some people genetically have more expression of an enzyme called lipoprotein lipase in their fat tissue. Now, that's important because lipoprotein lipase is the enzyme that as blood is, as fats are circulating through the blood, lipoprotein lipase will pull fats off from the blood and deposit them in the tissues outside of the blood vessel. And so if you have more lipoprotein lipase in your fat cells, in your fat tissue, then naturally you're just going to be storing it more readily in your fat tissue. So we know that people have inherent differences in the expression of lipoprotein lipase. We also know that there are inherent familial predispositions to just having more insulin resistance. Uh And, And that isn't always because of the fat cell. There are other origins of insulin resistance. But if someone is just living every moment of their life at a higher than normal insulin level, well, they're just going to be in a state that is more conducive to storing fat. Because if insulin is elevated, the body will be attempting to store fat. Yeah. Okay. Now, you mentioned the Asian population. And again, I'm going to jump on this because I never get a chance to ask these questions. The China Health Study, the the whole concept about that you can eat rice, you can eat high carbs and still lose weight or maintain a low weight. How does that fit into your story? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. your Please explain that because uh, this is where we get caught with the whole vegan vegetarian debate. Yeah. About- oh yeah. The yeah. China study by Dr. Campbell. Yeah. yeah. So how is it that they did not gain weight, whoever it was? Yeah. Well, it's very, very important to note that the China study is a, is a study that is that book called the China study is yeah. based on some human studies that were 
completely correlational. And as a cell biologist, I look at correlational studies with a hearty dose of disdain right. because these are only studies that can show a coincidence. And frankly, they weren't looking at obesity or anything else. And so I don't want us to lean on the China study too much because okay. that's not really the focus because the China study was looking at these low meat diets and how there was apparently lower rates carbs. of cancer. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, low meat, higher carbohydrate, and there appeared to be lower rates of cancer. That was the disease outcome they were looking at. They were not looking at obesity, which we right. can come back to in a moment. And they, they reported that in these human correlational studies where they were just having people answer surveys, which we can all appreciate the problem with these kinds of studies, they found that people who ate lower meat diets tended to have lower levels of cholesterol. So they found this correlation, yeah. low meat diets correlated with lower cholesterol levels. And then they found lower cholesterol levels correlated with lower cancer mortality. Okay. So they found A connected to B and B connected to C. They did not find that A connected to C directly. Uh -huh. So this book was a wonderful exercise in a little bit of deception, if I may be so bold and, and somewhat okay. accusatory in stating it. Now, the point of our conversation is not cancer, but what's interesting is go look at the rising generation in China yeah, or in Japan and see whether people would say the same thing. Because while the elderly people in Asian countries are all still quite lean, that yeah. is not true of the younger generations. Why is it, why is it true of the uh, older generation? Yeah, I, I, I can only, yeah, I can only assume to say that they're probably eating very little amounts of refined carbohydrates. Yeah, okay. Um, and they're probably not eating them very often. So they have traditional eating patterns where they're sure they're eating rice and lots of steamed vegetables. I don't mean to sound like I'm stereotyping. Huh. Um, that would generally be my experience. I've lived in Asia for many years. They would be eating rice, but lots of steamed vegetables, and frankly, lots of pork. That's an inconvenient truth of a lot of these cultures. They do eat a fair amount of meat. But they would eat breakfast, then they would eat lunch, and then they would eat dinner, and they're not eating lots of junk food in between. You, yeah. If I go to Singapore, you can notice this in people's homes. The grandparents eat exactly how I described it. The kids, their kids, or the next year, their grandkids, they're eating all the same junk I know. everyone yeah. is around the world. And so these kinds of, uh, I wonder in a generation from now, will people still be invoking these Asian countries as models yeah. of people who eat high carb, well, it won't work much longer because yeah. they're starting to eat like everybody else. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for answering all those questions. Yeah. Did you have more to say about the fat cells or should we jump back into no, I've, I've said it all. Yeah. Okay. So insulin resistance is the key player. And also, by the way, for people who are listening, the concept of the lipid or dystrophy, that's something we saw a lot in uh, here in our country with uh, the HIV medications of today, that uh, that's a major consequence. That, yes, we're saving lives, but we're also creating disease. Yep, that's called acquired lipodystrophy. That's exactly right. Yep. So there's yeah. congenital, which is you're born with this genetic yeah. problem, or it's a consequence of, of HIV. So the concept about insulin resistance being the cause of so many of these uh, illnesses. So this is, you mentioned that it's not just the fat cells that is the site of insulin resistance. It's also other. Can you elaborate a little bit mm -hmm. more on mm -hmm. the concept of insulin resistance? Yeah, and yes. It has created this plethora of what you call the uh, plagues of prosperity. Yeah, I love I love alliteration. You know, pardon me when I lean into it a little too much. Yeah. So there's a couple things in uh, what you're sort of posing right here. One is what are the origins of insulin resistance, and then next is kind of how is it leading to these diseases. So to, yeah. to touch on the first aspect initially, I consider there to be three primary causes of insulin resistance. Now, when I use the word primary, I'm using it very deliberately because the causes that I'll mentioned in just a moment have been validated or confirmed, tested, proven in all biomedical models, in isolated cells, in laboratory rodents, in humans. These causes just appear to be fundamental enough that they, they work everywhere in every experimental model. So they are one, chronically elevated insulin. If insulin is elevated for prolonged periods of time, it will cause insulin resistance. Absolutely. You cannot debate that to prove it false. It has been proven valid so many times. I've done the experiments myself, so I have a, quite a conviction in stating it that way. Yeah. Um, a next one is inflammation. Inflammation alone or the activation of immune pathways. I have to add that little description because people generally 
misunderstand inflammation, although it's invoked so readily nowadays. Inflammation, inflammation, people talk about it so much, and yet we don't really understand it. When I emphasize that by defining inflammation as the activation of immune pathways in cells, I state it that way because most people think of inflammation as a swelling. And that's that's certainly a valid way because when immune pathways are activated, this is, boy, I keep getting deep here, but when immune pathways are activated and immune proteins are flowing through the blood, what can happen is that blood vessel walls, which are normally super tight and allow very, very little to go through, become very porous. And now lots of water can start moving out of the blood vessels and blood cells themselves. And so you see a red, angry swelling of uh, an area. That's a consequence of immune pathways having been activated. Well, at a far more subtle cellular level than noticing a big, angry, swollen wound is this the process of cells simply responding to these proteins and initiating a series of events within the cell that has nothing to do with swelling, yeah. but we still call it inflammation because it's part of those it's part of those same processes. Well, long story short, anytime these processes are turned on in a cell, the cell will start to become insulin resistant. And this is something that's been noticeable with people as the world over the last two years has become so suddenly obsessed with immunity and disease in a way that they never were before. And in fact, if I may be so bold, in a way I think we need to get over as soon as possible. People will notice this in themselves, especially where people are wearing continuous glucose monitors now so often. They'll be wearing a continuous glucose monitor, know that they're ill, and notice, boy, I'm having a really hard time controlling my blood sugar levels because they become insulin resistant. So anytime immunity is turned on, like even in an autoimmunity, if someone has rheumatoid arthritis and they notice, oh my gosh, my rheumatoid arthritis is really yeah. active right now, they will be demonstrably more insulin resistant than they are. All things equal. Diet isn't changing. Sleep isn't changing. Nothing else. They yeah. will absolutely be more insulin resistant than they were when the autoimmune disease is kind of ebbed a little bit where it's, it's kind of turned off for yeah. them because autoimmune diseases will tend to come and go. So inflammation is another primary cause that is totally independent of insulin. Each of these are independent. Now, the last one is stress. Mm-hmm. Now, stress is best defined when we view it through the lens of endocrinology and hormones. When the stress hormones are elevated, namely cortisol and epinephrine, or mm-hmm. adrenaline as it's also known, then the body will become insulin resistant. All you need to do is put a little cortisol in the system or a little epinephrine in the system cells, rodents, or humans, and the system will become insulin resistant. So these are the three primary causes, elevated, chronically elevated insulin, inflammation, and stress. And there are some other secondary causes that I won't get into just for the sake of time. And now to the next part of this, yeah. how does insulin resistance connect to so many disorders? Yeah. Well, that would be an answer that you'd have to write a book about. To make it somewhat brief, let's just kind of pick some of the big ones, the low-hanging fruit, like Alzheimer's disease. Yes, Alzheimer's, please. So <laughs> Alzheimer's disease could also be known as a disease of brain glucose hypometabolism. I'm not the person who invented that terminology. In fact, a scientist in Quebec named Stephen Cunane was the first I ever saw who invoked it, and he might have been quoting someone else. But he noticed in his lab that people with Alzheimer's disease, even before people with early cognitive decline, before it was formally diagnosed as Alzheimer's disease, they could measure how much glucose the brain was taking in and metabolizing, and it was significantly lower than people with healthy cognitive cognition. And they found that if they could fill that gap, you know, if the brain is saying, hey, I need this much energy right here, glucose can only now meet this much of my energy. So I have all this gap that I need to fill. And ketones can fill that gap, but that's a topic for another time, perhaps. But suffice it to say, insulin is a hormone that helps the brain get all the glucose that it wants. That's part of, that's one of insulin's many, many jobs, getting glucose into some cells. And so, if the brain can't respond to glucose very well, then the glucose that it wants, which is right here, now isn't getting in. And so even though glucose may be elevated in the body, there might be plenty of glucose in the blood, the brain can't get it. And so it's manifesting this glucose 
hypometabolism or deficiency in metabolism. Because and of also, insulin resistance, right? Yeah, because the brain is basically going hungry because it has become yeah. insulin resistant. Sure. And then maybe one last example that people sure. wouldn't next normally think of, and that's infertility. The most common form of infertility in women is polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS or PCOS. Yeah. I don't like calling it that, PCOS. In PCOS, there are multiple problems, all of which stem from too much insulin in the blood, which happens with insulin resistance. Insulin inhibits the ovary's ability to convert androgens like testosterone into estrogens. And for normal, a normal ovulatory cycle, a woman must have a big increase in estrogens. That's necessary for normal ovulation. But if you can't make a lot of estrogens, then the estrogen, what should have been a really big peak, is now a very modest peak, and it's not enough to induce ovulation. And so the egg, the follicles that were growing in the ovary, just stay big follicles, and they never, one of them never actually becomes dominant and pops out the egg and ovulates. Because the ovulation never happens, all those follicles that were literally growing the ovary, that happens every month in a woman, they stay there. And so the ovary's gotten bigger. And then next cycle, they maybe even get bigger again, and then bigger again. And that, of course, starts to become exceptionally painful. So at its root, PCOS is a disease of too much insulin, which is inhibiting the ovary's ability to produce the proper mix of sex hormones. But then you're a wonderful explainer. Like good, good. Well, I'm not even done. Vera, can I do one more? Okay, do one. I don't want to leave the guys off the hook here. Okay, but I want you to say something about cancer too. You got okay, okay, okay. I'll I'll get to cancer then, just for you. So even with infertility, the most common form of infertility in men is a disease called erectile dysfunction. Yeah, and it is so intimately connected to insulin resistance. I'm not the one who said this. There's a paper, uh, a biomedical peer-reviewed paper published by physicians, and the title of it is something like, is erectile dysfunction the earliest manifestation of insulin resistance in young men? In men, of course, normal erectile function is dependent on blood vessels being able to go from very narrow, constricted, to very dilated. You have to have a significant change in blood flow, and that requires what's called vaso or vessel or vascular dilation, expanding. But insulin helps that process. When insulin is working well, it actually is promoting the dilation of blood vessels. But of course, you can already see the problem. If blood vessels have become insulin resistant, blood vessels that should be dilating to enable blood flow, to enable erectile function, stay constricted, and now there is only erectile dysfunction. Now question, if I were to give Viagra, which of course I'm asked repeatedly, is that like insulin where I can make the person more insulin resistant? Because I'm Yeah, that's a good question. No. no. Basically, by giving someone Viagra, yeah. you are skipping the step where insulin would be needed at all. So when oh. insulin is working, it is stimulating the production of nitric oxide, yes. which just forces this vasodilation. Okay. Well, Viagra just skips that step and goes right to the nitric oxide production. Okay, all right. Okay, good. Anyway, cancer. Now cancer, yeah. So I have to be very careful here because I don't know of any evidence showing that insulin resistance causes cancer. But there is significant evidence finding the correlation, which is always a little problematic, that people who are insulin resistant will be more, much more likely to develop cancer and much more likely for the cancer to be more aggressive. Mm-hmm. And so I have to speculate a little. Nothing I have set up until this point is speculation. I'm all mm-hmm. stating it. I'm stating all of it as fact. Yeah. Now I'm stepping into speculation for a moment before I step back into fact. We know that cancer cells, one of the many mutations, tends to be an increase in the number of insulin receptors on the cell. Which is estrogen, right? Well, estrogen might have a part of this, but it can just be a fundamental inherent mutation where like a breast tumor, for example, if it's cancerous, it will have up to seven times more insulin receptors per cell compared with normal mammary gland tissue in the breast. And so that's part of what's mutated. That's a problem because Uh insulin is a signal that promotes growth. It promotes cell growth. And now you have these cancer cells that are basically seven times better 
at growing in response to insulin. At the same time, while insulin is stimulating the growth of the cancer cell, you can't grow unless you have fuel. Well, cancer cells thrive on glucose as their fuel. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so glucose is the primary fuel for cancer cells. So imagine the average individual who's insulin resistant, so high insulin, and they're eating these refined starches and sugars all the time. You have the high insulin promoting the growth of the cancer cell. And now you have all this glucose fueling the growth of the cancer cell, creating a perfect storm. Wow. Okay. Thank you. That that's fabulous. Okay. So insulin resistance cause of uh, at least three or four of these metabolic uh, or basically, well, the metabolic conditions. So now let's get to the solution because we don't have that much time. Mm-hmm. So yeah. You mentioned you mentioned keto, but let, let's start with just generally low carb. So yeah. I, presumably, it's you're calling upon less requirement for insulin. But why don't you you, you take it from there? Yeah, yeah. So if we, if I, if I frame this part of the conversation up by talking solutions, if we take a step back for a moment and explore the origins, yeah, we'll recall that there were three origins: chronically elevated insulin, inflammation, right. and stress. Well, theoretically, we could address all of these, and that would be great. Unfortunately, the latter two are very difficult to deal with. It is very difficult to know what your stress levels are and lower them. Indeed, uh-huh. by even telling someone you need to lower your stress, you amplify it. Yeah. Um, the same goes, um, not the same, I'm sorry, with inflammation, you can't define inflammation very well. It's very difficult to know, do I have inflammation or do I not? And if you do have it, it's very difficult to know what the origins are. So as valid as those other two are, and they absolutely are relevant, they're also somewhat irrelevant because you can't really address them too well. You can't and somewhat, especially stress with better sleep habits and you know meditation and calming practices, sure, you can. But nothing moves the needle like lowering insulin. And that's entirely a matter of the food we eat. And so this is no surprise to hear me elaborate on these because of my affection for alliteration. But someone ought to, they would benefit from controlling carbohydrates. Yeah. So control carbohydrates. By that, I mean fruits and vegetables, eat them, don't drink them, and be very careful with everything else. Try not to get the majority of your carbohydrates from bags and boxes with barcodes. Yeah. And I saw I saw somewhere in your book, I think you said 30 to 50 carbs was an ideal of a, not a keto, but a low carb. Yeah. Well, that would be keto. That would be ketogenic. And, okay. and, and I don't even want to bring up ketogenic because that's immediately so polarizing. Yeah. People will say, oh, keto so bad. I'm not going to do keto. Yeah. And so I don't even like to say that. I just like to say, control your carbohydrates. And if it's fruits and vegetables, no, if it's fruits and vegetables, no number. Okay. All right. If you eat your fruits and vegetables and you aren't drinking them, then enjoy. Okay. In general. And then the next one is prioritize protein. Make sure you're getting a very, a good amount of high quality, which is to say animal-based protein. We absorb animal proteins better than plant proteins, and they don't come with the junk that comes with plant proteins, like things called anti-nutrients that literally block the absorption and the digestion of amino acids and other minerals. And we don't get potentially harmful levels of heavy metals like lead and arsenic, which are known to be enriched in these so-called plant proteins. Well, what about so, right? like legumes? People really think that... Yeah, well, like- if someone's eating legumes, enjoy them, but you're getting an insignificant amount of protein. That is not prioritizing protein, in my mind. You okay. need to make sure you're getting meat or eggs and dairy, which is the most concentrated forms of protein on the planet. Interestingly, speaking of those proteins and the need to prioritize them, all proteins in nature come with fat. And that's the next one. Don't fear fat. There is no exception to this. If someone's eating protein in nature, like our ancestors have done since the beginning of our species, they always were getting protein with fat. That's how we should get it. When protein and fat come together, we digest both better and we have a bigger effect at growing muscle than we do if we're just trying to eat protein alone. Another reason why I'm so critical of plant proteins, they come with no fat because it's an artificial source of protein anyway. There's no fat to come with it. So we don't absorb it as well. When we eat it with fat, we absorb, we digest the protein better. And then, and then lastly, just fasting, not being afraid of fasting when we can, but okay. there's no clever alliteration for that. So control carbs, prioritize protein, don't fear fat. I want to get to the fasting, but just in terms of the prioritizing proteins, can you give us a number there? Because I know yeah, people... Yeah, are- I can. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. Good. So if someone can get around one and a half grams of protein per ideal kilogram of body weight, that's a great number to shoot for. So if, if someone, now I say ideal, because if we were talking about someone who's 150 kilos, 
but they are 50 kilos overweight you know, mm-hmm. or more, then we want to go with where they know they ought to be. You know, uh, 150 is a bit too much. So if, so someone's, if, if someone's 100 kilos and they know, well, before I started gaining all this weight, I was actually 70 kilos, then that's kind of the number you want to go at. But then it's, you know, around for every kilo, it's about one and a half grams of protein per day from meat okay. eggs, ideally. Okay, so that's like a, a hundred hundred grams of protein. A that's, day. It's pretty easy. It's it's actually pretty easy. That's not that much. Or so per meal. Yeah. Okay. So let's get to the fasting bit. So what do you mean by fasting? And yeah. And I- yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I don't mean to keep invoking only Canadians here, but it just keeps being appropriate. Jason Fung is a physician <laughs> yeah. um, who is from Eastern Canada. I'm sure if you guys haven't invoked him or talked about him before, anyone who uh, I've been trying talk- to get him, we've been emailing him. On well, he's he is the godfather yeah. of of fasting. If uh, you got it in, let me have. Well, it. I do, but <laughs> I, I can only have so much leverage. He's such a busy right, guy. Okay. Yeah, but he has. Uh, he's really the godfather of the modern fasting yeah. movement. And so I would really refer anyone who's interested in this, some of the ample material he's created. In general, I am a fan of intermittent fasting, where yeah. a person picks a meal at one of the ends of the day and they skip that meal, but not skipping anything else, eating liberally so that you're not really going hungry. But sometimes I think we need to be a little hungry to remind our bodies who's in charge. Um, that's a little bit philosophical now, I admit, and so I won't spend any real time on it. But I think there's value in just reminding our body, the flesh and blood, that there's more to us, that there's something up here that's in charge, that goes beyond our base instincts. Now, and I think the, fasting helps with that. One of the uh, proportions that I liked that I read in your book was the 4, 4, and 12. So, yeah. um, so is that the one that you primarily push? And if so, yeah. Yeah, well, I would consider that to be a first step, which okay. is basically don't snack. I mean, that's the simplest way of describing that. Okay. Don't snack, which is you eat breakfast, you eat lunch, you eat dinner, and that's it. Four hours between and then 12 hours between uh, at, at, at night. night. Yep, that's okay. absolutely right. And then as someone can kind of graduate beyond that, then they can start going because for some people, that's very difficult. They could say skip breakfast and they eat a really big lunch in a more modest dinner. And then that's how they start incorporating some some intermittent fasting. And then maybe once a week, one day a week, they actually do a full 24-hour food fast. They can still drink, but no calories coming in. You're uh-huh. not drinking calories, but you can drink, but you're fasting from calories otherwise. And you do that for 24 hours. So what I often do, in fact, it's today, it's Monday, Usually on Sunday, I've indulged a little more. Uh, like Indeed, my nine-year-old yesterday wanted to make cookies for the family. <laughs> I had some of my boys' cookies, and I loved every bite. My strategy is a middle-aged guy who went bald very early and thus has a, an, an unnatural motivation to stay lean and strong hmm. um, because of it. My strategy is I will eat dinner with my family. Whatever my family is having, I'm eating dinner. Now, my wife generally sees nutrition the same way I do. But even still, it's Sunday, we have dinner, you know, meat and vegetables generally, sometimes some baked potatoes, which I love. And my nine-year-old wanted to make dessert and he made some cookies. I'm not going to turn my nose up at my child's cookies. And so I know usually on Sunday, I'm going to indulge a little more than normal. And I just like to kind of get things back on track every week by doing a 24-hour fast every Monday. So I ate dinner with the family on Sunday, And now, not that I'm trying to impose my view on anyone, but it works for me. And so I will eat dinner with the family tonight. We're going out for Indian food, and I'm going to love every minute of it. You can't do Indian food low carb, unfortunately. So I will have some rice and some naan bread. All right. So now you did say in in your writing of fasting, you mentioned it a couple of times. I really like this. You said there is a fine line between fasting and starvation. So how is it that you're... 24 hours here is not a version of starvation. Yeah, yeah. What a great question. In fact, it's not it's not as subtle as I might have implied in the book. I shouldn't have said fine line, but I think I did use those words. What yeah. I should have said is there's a brick wall between okay. them because it's not something someone casually starts doing. I A 24-hour fast for me is not starvation because starvation happens when you run out of fat. And I have at least a few weeks worth of fat on my body. Most people have a couple years of fat or at least a year of fat on their body. And it may not a couple years, but a year. 
a lot of people who are very overweight could literally not eat a calorie for a year and have enough energy to live on, as has been done and documented in under clinical supervision. So I'm being very careful here in stating it that way. Under clinical supervision, we know there are instances where people have fasted for over a year, no calories coming in, just water, vitamins, minerals. And that was not starvation because starvation happens once we run out of fat. Once we run out of fat, now the body is forced to start relying on other tissues for energy, like the muscle. So the moment muscle fat is gone and now we start burning muscle to start turning that protein into glucose, now we're starving. But as long as someone has fat to burn, they're fasting. Okay, so now the reason why I would imagine that somebody uh, would promote fasting is because it allows us to use our ketones as opposed to our glucose. So, Well, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so that would be, why yeah, that would be the reason up? to fast if you have a cognitive deficit yeah. or you need ketones for a brain disorder. And ketones are therapeutic for many brain disorders. I don't fast because I want the ketones for my brain. I fast because I want the insulin to be low. And when insulin is low, the body starts to become more sensitive. And the more insulin sensitive the body is, the lower my risk of Alzheimer's later, my lower blood pressure, the better my fertility, etc. Yeah. So you're not checking the ketones in your urine to make sure that they're there or something. I'm not. No. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, do you have any, uh, aside from the cognitive attributes, do you have any reason why you might promote a ketone, uh, like Mm. to use your ketones as fuel instead of glucose? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, ketones wouldn't be used instead of glucose, but in addition to glucose. All right. Yeah. So ketones are very, very beneficial for the brain. Multiple, multiple studies show this with migraines, with epilepsy, with Parkinson's, with multiple sclerosis, with Alzheimer's disease. There are number, a number of neurological disorders that are improved when ketones are present at higher levels in the blood. Beyond that, we know that ketones have an anti-inflammatory effect. So that might be helpful if someone has frequent autoimmune issues because maybe the joints are uncomfortable, but ketones now are suddenly mitigating some of that joint discomfort. I'm speculating a little on that. I don't know of data on that, but we do know that ketones inhibit inflammation. Ketones also, when they are used for energy, produce less oxidative stress than glucose does. And so some people refer to them as a cleaner burning fuel. I kind of like that expression. It's basically clean burning. There's less pollution, if you will. Okay, good. And because we're running out of time, I got to throw in the obvious question. Have you got anything to say about food addiction? I mean, this conversation is so useful for us to motivate us to remain free from sugar because of food addiction. But do you have anything specific to say about that? Yeah, yeah. Indeed, this is why I was interested in in the podcast, because I am such an advocate of pointing the finger at this, because so many people won't. And, and they don't think there's anything here to look at. They'll say, you know, keep on walking. There's no such thing as food addiction. I think that's absolutely asinine and silly. The fact is, I like the idea of food addiction because it aligns so neatly with my own view. I don't study food addiction. I study insulin resistance. And yet, I think the two really work together because on a Friday night, no one is sitting around watching Netflix thinking, boy, I sure could use a plate of bacon and eggs. Oh, I just got to get some bacon and eggs. No one is saying that. They want carbohydrates. It's refined carbohydrates that we find so addicting. It is not protein and fat. Now, you could say, well, but carbs and fat together is... is Pork rinds. People love pork rinds. Yeah, well, I'd eat pork rinds all day and wouldn't have a problem with that. That's almost pure protein. That's no problem. But I'm not sitting around on a Friday night thinking, boy, I want a bowl of pork rinds. It just, I wish I did. I really did. I really do. I want ice cream or I want cereal, you know, mini wheats or something, something that is going to rocket my glucose up and spike my insulin. And so it, it just, it's interesting to me that the same foods that I think most people find addicting yeah. happen to be the same ones that are the most deleterious metabolically. I know. If people I think there's suddenly, a connection. Yeah. Absolutely. If people were suddenly addicted to steak, well, then we would cure obesity and diabetes in just a few months. You know, I would love to see a study to see that the people who are most metabolically deranged are also probably the most dopamine deranged. In other words, yeah, 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 well said. I haven't haven't seen that yet, but I bet you there's a connection. Well, we know know in Parkinson's, which is dopamine being produced in a different part of the brain, it's a different part of the brain, but we know that the dopamine-producing neurons become insulin-resistant and produce less dopamine. It's tempting to speculate that the same thing is happening at the other areas of the brain where dopamine is acting as a kind of reward signal. And I don't know about that. Yeah. 
go ahead, Molly. I'm going to stop here. Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed this conversation. So I'm a clinician in the field. Like I primarily work with clients. Vera, Vera does as well, but like at that medical prescriber level. So certainly I'm the everyday coach and getting people through. And one of the things we, you know, we really kind of stress to our clients is that we eat first for abstinence. So we really encourage our clients to remove any of those things that are acting like drugs or alcohol in their, mm-hmm. in their mm-hmm. brains, their bodies. And then we eat for, then the second level of that is like, okay, now we eat for health. So we really want to remove any of those That's things brilliant. that are And so a lot of this conversation, I feel like is really important to stress that point that, you know, first we eat for absence, then we eat for health because something like couscous or quinoa or something like that, right. It has this health halo around it. It may not be activating their brain like methamphetamine, but certainly it may be contributing to some of the insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction that chicken or the egg. I don't know which came first with addiction and that, right. The food addiction. And then that, and then we say, then eat for preference, you know? So first we want to remove all this. I love that. Yeah. So I just appreciate this conversation and you just breaking it down in such a a good way because yeah. 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 I always find my clients hear it so much better from the pocket. They're like, Oh, we love the guests. And and I'm like, (laughs) I've been saying that for years. That's That's right. So I appreciate that. So out of curiosity, we need to know what is next for you. What are you working on another book? different project? Like what should we be looking for? Yeah. Well, thanks again, you guys, for the attention here that we could bring to this topic. I am in fact, yes, working on a second book. I just finished the first draft of the follow-up book. Why We Get Sick has been reasonably well-received. I don't have anything to compare it to, but the publisher tells me it's been going okay. And, so, and so they well, asked... Well, we're reading folks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, go. Yeah, I, if anyone has found this conversation compelling, you will love the book, yeah. guaranteed. So the next book is going to be more of an explicit plan. That basically, the first book really outlines what is insulin resistance, where does it come from, why does it matter, and then there's a little bit on what to do about it. And so the publisher said we really need to build that up. And so this next book will be much more kind of it's half kind of reading textbook kind of Ben Bickman stuff, and then it's another half of actual meal planning, actual recipes. Mm-hmm actual exercise plans. So much more on the solution side of things. And so that's a book that won't come out till the later part of next year. Beyond that, we have ongoing studies in the lab. We're looking more at uric acid as interest in uric acid is growing. We're studying that a little bit to explore its origins and insulin resistance. It is what I consider a secondary cause, but we'll get into that another time. And we have more work going about to be published about Alzheimer's disease and brain energy use with ketones versus glucose and a handful of other studies that we've all got going on all the time because we have an active research lab here. Excellent. Yeah. It's so exciting. I look forward to your videos on social media. So good. Well, I appreciate those. it. Yeah. So before we go, because we want to be respectful of your time, we have a signature question. I'm going to kind of tweak it to make sense for you since you don't identify as, as having food addiction. So if you could tell a younger version of yourself, something about metabolic dysfunction, insulin resistance, anything along those lines, what would that be? Yeah. In fact, I'm not going to remove myself from the food addiction category here because as much as I know, this just is proof, further evidence of the disconnect between knowledge and action. As mm. you'd think, Ben knows as much about this as any, more than almost anyone. And yet I still struggle with my own habits. What I would do is go back to high school and tell myself when I'd get home from basketball practices in my little farm town in Southern Alberta, I would get home from basketball practice and I would eat three huge bowls of cereal. Oh my gosh. Or I would make literally, or I would make eight pieces of toast and with lots of jam. In fact, to the point that for Christmas one year, my dad bought me like 10 loaves of bread and like 10 jars of jam (laughs) because I would just eat so much of it. And of course I could get away with it. I was still growing, but that tendency to, at the end of every day, indulge in a lot of refined carbohydrate is something that now, 25 years later, I'm still struggling with. Wow. I, every evening, it takes a Herculean effort on my part not to start indulging in junk food. It is my witching hour. And I firmly believe it was because of habits that I developed in high school where I was just paying no attention to what I was eating. And indeed, thinking I was probably doing my body a favor, but it initiated habits 
that I'm still struggling with now. And I don't have it perfected. I, you know, I have little, little hacks where I'll tell myself I'm going to eat some pickles now and drink some pickle juice. And in fact, that's one of the more helpful things, frankly, or drinking club soda with a little bit of apple cider vinegar in it. So I'm developing strategies more and more, but even still, I, I deal with those issues, which is why I try to not have those things in the house. We eat cereal very rarely in my yeah. home, in part because I don't want my kids to eat a lot of cereal. We make homemade breakfasts instead. And in part, because if that cereal is in the home, if those mini wheats are in the pantry, once evening settles in, the kids are in bed and I've kind of cleaned the house, then those mini wheats just start calling my name. It's this siren call that takes a superhuman amount of discipline on my part. Indeed, to the point that I'm much stronger at the grocery store than I am at home. And so I will look at it and say, get the hints. Say I'm not gonna I'm not gonna indulge. Right. So yeah, so I would go back to myself and, and start looking at these habits and scrutinize them earlier. But what I do now then is I help my kids be aware of this. It's too late for me. I can't go back to high school. I can just deal with the habits I have now as best I can. Not that it's too late. It's too late to change my past, but it's not too late for me to help my kids who are who are getting to this stage. And so it's we don't have a lot of these kinds of things in the home naturally. So it's just helping them learn to have different habits than I had and certainly focus more on protein. When my kids want to indulge in something that we have in the home, I won't say no because I don't want them to think of these things as forbidden. I will say, have you had some protein recently? Because I know if they're going to eat protein, it's going to be some beef jerky or some beef sticks or some cheese or some yogurt. It's going to be something that is very nourishing and it will fill them up much better. And then, then, all right, okay, now how much, what do you want? All right, here, here you go. And they'll just be satisfied much, much sooner if they even have remembered that they wanted it in the first place. All right. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. Fascinating. And as I said a few times, you're just a great teacher. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'd be really happy if we could have you back maybe when your book, your second book comes out. Yep, you bet. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.